0: John chapter 4. As we are turning there, I just want to remind us God loves us. He sees us. And uh, in this text, we are going to see the love of God in action, on the move. Uh, So we'll read, we're, we're reading a good chunk of scripture. We're possibly biting off more than we can chew. Hopefully not. We will see. Uh, But we'll read uh, verses 1 through 18, the famous interaction with Jesus and the woman at the well. John 4. Let's read that together. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples... Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus, we thank you for your word, your living word. Just as we heard this morning, Lord, you send out your word and you heal us. You send out your word and you heal us. So Lord, would, would you right now just send out your word? Holy Spirit, would you be the teacher of all things? Would you make this living word alive to us? Would you speak to each one of us? Lord, I think of that Prophecy, that vision in Ezekiel 37 where there was just this valley of dry bones. It says they were very dry. Lord, I know my own soul and others here can get dry. Our soul feels dry. Our bones feel dry. Our very spiritual life feels dry. And and then you sent a prophet and he spoke your word and those bones came together and they had order. And then you sent forth your spirit and flesh and blood and life came into those bones. Would you do that for us this morning? Would you send forth your word? Would you bring order and correction and build us, put us back together, Lord, where we're in shambles, where we're just like bones, and then send forth your spirit and make us alive like a watered garden. Lord, we need you this morning. We're not here um, just for a motivational talk. Um, We need the living God to give us living water so that we will have eternal life. So please, God, speak to us. Refresh us. Wake us up. Give us faith, Lord. (laughs) This woman had little faith that you were able to do it, but God, give us faith. But you were able to do incredible things, supernatural, miraculous things this morning in first service with our and my, everyone's circumstances. So speak now, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the marks of humanity is that we thirst. We cannot live apart from water. We are whatever high percentage, 70 or so percent of water. God has made humanity, in fact, every living thing, to continually thirst, to continually drink. Uh, in In the Garden of Eden, there was a river there. And it said it split into four great rivers, one of which was the great Euphrates, but that, that river was in the garden to provide all that Adam and Eve and the garden needed for life. But to be human is not just a a physical thirst. Human beings are not just bodies. We have souls. We have spirit. We have a heart and a mind. You know, our our souls are thirsty and crave satisfaction. Our spirits crave rest. Our hearts long for emotional, our hearts are like emotionally thirsty. Our minds are restless and they're searching for answers. To be human in every sense of the word is to thirst. I know that because you are human, you came in here today thirsty You have questions, you have emotional needs, relational needs, your soul has needs, your spirit has needs. As David said in Psalm 23, he restores my soul, which means our souls are thirsty. Now, the famous King Solomon, remember Solomon, one of the wealthiest men who ever was to live, he spent all of his life and all of his incomparable wealth Searching for satisfaction for this very thing, this soul thirst. Look what he said. We're just going to read an account of him searching, thirsting in Ecclesiastes chapter two, verses one through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart. How to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight Of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It's this incredibly sobering, yet honestly familiar message that we hear as Americans, right? How many celebrities have we heard of who have had all that they could have, all that their hearts and minds and bodies and souls and spirits longed for, they got it. And in fact, it it seems it's even more depressing when you actually get it. You see, most of us spend our life thirsting, thinking if only I get it, then I would not thirst anymore. But there are some people who actually get it and what they testify is your soul is just as thirsty. Thirsty. That is what it is to be a human being. Now, let me me remind you of something you know, but your soul needs every single day. There is only one person who can satisfy your thirst, and that's Jesus. Hear Jesus say to your soul these words in John 7, 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And drink. There is only one who is enough for your soul, for your mind, for your body, for your spirit, for all of your humanity. Now, I can hear some of you saying, maybe cynically, yeah, I, I, I know. I know that. My mind knows that. My soul knows that. I've tried it. I've tried this whole Christianity thing, and honestly, it didn't satisfy. I've tried it. Uh, to you, let me suggest you are like the woman in this text who thought she knew the one true God. She, she thought she knew, but she didn't even recognize God in the flesh before her. She thought she knew. Yet Jesus was standing before her and she had no, if she only knew who she was really talking to. Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is speaking to you. And his point is this you may think you know, but if you're still thirsty, you haven't tasted the real thing. Uh, for others of us this morning, you maybe have tasted the real thing. You are born again, you have that living water in you, but somehow, You've, you've still become dry, you feel dry, you feel weary. Maybe you've begun visiting other wells. Uh, maybe you've been tasting from other wells, saying maybe this, maybe this will do the trick. Maybe that will do the trick. Uh, for both types, th- those who haven't yet even tasted, and for those who are so familiar with Jesus, we're gonna get a fresh taste and, and glimpse of this living water, this one, this only one who can satisfy. Um, for context sake, I, I want you to see this. This is beautiful the way John has compiled the beginning of his gospel. John 4 comes in a series of stories that, that, that John is, is essentially making one point. From John chapter two, John chapter three, John chapter four, he's making one point and it's this, Jesus is better than you think. In fact, he even ends John chapter one with Nathanael. Remember, he's sitting under a tree and he, he loses his mind because Jesus knew where he was sitting and what he was thinking. And he's like, you're the son of God. And and Jesus is like, Nathanael, if you're impressed with that, like, like you, you, you have no idea. You have no idea what's in store for you. In John chapter two, Jesus brings wine out of this old Jewish cleansing jar. And what he's saying is this, I'm the new wine. I bring true and better cleansing than the law. I am bringing about a better wedding than this wedding between God and his people. I am the best groom there is. Then he goes to the temple, right? And he clears out the temple. And what he says is, I'm the better temple. I'm going to tear this veil in two. I will bring God and man together. Then in chapter three, he's speaking with Nicodemus, this great teacher of the Jews. And he tells one of the greatest Jews who's ever lived, you need a better birth than your Jewish one. You need to be born again. The Holy Spirit must give you new life entirely. And that's only possible through Jesus. And then chapter three ends as John the Baptist is saying, I must decrease and Jesus must increase. And then it ends last week by saying, Jesus is superior to every prophet that has ever come or will come. And now we come to John chapter four. And John is making this exact same point. Jesus is better than anyone, anything. He alone satisfies your soul. That is the point of this text. And so we're gonna view just these uh, 18 verses under three points. And and we're gonna learn three ways Jesus is better than you think. Three ways he's better than you think. Now, I I just wanna say this. I I phrased these, these points as if you don't really know. And here's what I mean by that. You may know in your brain, uh, you may know that honey is sweet. You're like, yeah, I know that. I, I and someone's like, no, do you understand? This honey is better than you think. You're like, no, I know honey's sweet. I already know that. The point is there's more to Jesus than just head knowledge. That's essential. But, but we are to taste and see. And, and what this chapter is telling us is there's more to taste. You haven't you think you've reached the end of the goodness of Jesus? No way. There's more. He's better. He's better than you think. And so the, the, this, this story begins uh, verses one through nine under this heading. Jesus is nearer than you think. Jesus is nearer than you think. R- let's read again together the first five verses. You guys ready? We got like quite a Bible study ahead of us, but it's gonna be good for our soul. Okay, here we go. Uh, Verses one through five. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Now, if you remember John chapter four, Jesus was baptizing right down the river from John the Baptist and all of John the Baptist's crowd and disciples start going to Jesus. Jesus looks around and is like, okay, I'm getting popular. And the Pharisees see me getting popular. And he's like, I I don't want there to, People think there's some big division between John's ministry and mine. We go hand in hand. And so he's like, I I don't wanna further this competition. And so he's like, it's time to go. It's time to move. In a sense, the baton was passed from John to Jesus. And the key phrase is in verse four, and he had to pass through Samaria. Okay, first of all, that's not true in a literal geographical sense. Jews hated Samaritans. Now, if you if you could picture a map, picture the Sea of Galilee at the top, uh, the Dead Sea at the bottom, Jerusalem's right above the Dead Sea, uh, Galilee's at the top, and so Jesus is like, I need to go from the bottom to the top. Now, he had to pat if if he's going to do a straight line, that's Samaria. Um, And what Jews would do is they would go across the the Dead Sea, across the Jordan. They would travel through Gentile territory and then they would come back. So there were multiple geographical ways he could get there. He didn't literally have to get there. What, What this is saying is Jesus had to, in a sense, like God had sent him. That phrase, had to, is used in the Gospel of John to speak of the mission that God the Father has given God the Son. It's used all throughout. He had to because God the Father has sent him. This was something that God the Father said, Jesus, you need to go to Samaria. He had to go to Samaria. Now, it's important to to briefly remember, many of us know this, there is real drama between Israel and Samaria, uh, King David had, the, had his kingdom, the twelve tribes, and he handed it off to King his son King Solomon. King Solomon had forty years of a unified the twelve tribes of Israel under the reign of solomon and then he handed it off to his son, and his son was a fool, and under his foolish leadership, the kingdom split and Most of the kingdom went north, away from Jerusalem. They went north, and the capital of the northern kingdom became Samaria. That became the capital of the northern kingdom. Now, if you know the story, both the north and the south uh, disobey God. He warns them. He sends prophets. They don't listen. They both go into exile. When the northern kingdom goes into exile, the Assyrians come, they take over, they leave just the poorest people in the land uh, to just to make sure like it doesn't get overrun by, you know, whatever wild animals and just like, yeah, like you stay here. And what they also did is they imported mixed people from all over the area to intentionally uh, like dilute the Jewish line. And so these people came in and they mixed and intermarried with these leftover Jews, if you will. And what they did is they began to not just mix in terms of like bloodline, they began to mix with their worship and their worship practices. And so they rejected the rest of the scriptures. They said, no, only the first five books are for us. They rejected that God set up his temple in Jerusalem. They set up their own temple in Mount Gerizim. They, they like kind of made their own folk religion, like kind of Jewish, kind of not. And so when the Jews finally came back from exile, they, they saw this group of people who were mixed ethnically and were mixed in their worship. They rejected the scriptures and it was like, God, gosh, these people are the worst. I would rather be with a Gentile than a Samaritan. That was the hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, Jesus says, or, or the text tells us Jesus had to go to those people. You see, Jesus is unlike us. And he has a soft spot for these rejected people. Yeah, their worship was wrong. It was idolatrous. Yeah, they were rejecting the the scriptures. Yeah, they disobeyed God not to intermarry. But he had a soft spot for these people. Uh, If you remember, the hero of one of his famous parables was a Samaritan. Of all the people Jesus could have just made up in his head, he picked a Samaritan to be the hero. Uh, There's a story where he heals 10 lepers, and only one returns, and then the text says, and he was a leper. You're like, oh, the Jews are like, why'd it have to be the leper? Or why'd it have to be the Samaritan that, that came back and said, thank you? Uh, soon, Jesus is even accused of being a demon-possessed Samaritan. That was like the worst thing a Jew could say to someone. You're a demon-possessed Samaritan. And Jesus gets called a demon-possessed Samaritan. Uh, his last, the, think of this, the last words Jesus ever spoke while he was on the earth as recorded in Acts 1.8, the last specific people he says you need to go to is the Samaritans. Look, Look what he says. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's like, don't forget them. Don't just jump to the nations and forget the Samaritans. You are to go to Samaria. Now, There is no person, hear this, there is no person on this planet and there is no person in this very room that is beyond the love of Jesus. That person doesn't exist. It does not exist. The Samaritans were like intentionally displayed as the great enemies of the Jews. And Jesus intentionally has to go and show his love to the Samaritans. Jesus is closer to you in the worst of your life and mess than you think, than you could ever imagine. Now let's go on, that point continues. Verse six, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, It was about the sixth hour. Let me get a water. A small but important side note here in verse six is one of of John's priorities in this entire book is to show and testify that Jesus, the man they all like interacted with, was God. That's like one of his priorities. Uh, But here's the thing. For us, 20 centuries later, we're like, yeah, yeah, we get that. You know, what we actually need to remember sometimes is that Jesus was also human. He was truly human. He had a human body that literally thirsted, that literally got hungry. He, he was depending on his disciples for food and this woman for drink. He really got exhausted. Jesus really literally got weary. He, the son of God, had to sit down and rest. He was genuinely human. And one of the things that Hebrews says is because he was truly human, he's, he's able to like really have compassion on you. He really knows what it's like to be human in this fallen world with a fallen human body, fallen relationships with sickness and death. He knows what weakness is. He knows what exhaustion is. Jesus is nearer to you and to have compassion on you than you would ever think. He's not just God far away. He's, he was a human. He is still a human being. One of the things theologians know and say and talk about is he will forever be in a human body. Jesus is human. He is truly human. Now, Read with me verses uh, seven through nine to wrap, wrap this up. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, okay, we get introduced now to the essential Character of this chapter. <clears throat> John, now, okay, this is it's important to take a break, think about this. John 4 comes on the heels of John 3. There are two central characters in, in, there's one in John 3, there's one in John 4. In John 3, Jesus was speaking with Nicodemus. He was a male, he was a Jew, he was a ruler, he was a teacher of Orthodox biblical doctrine. He was well-respected. He was so respected, he had to visit Jesus at night in case that would in any way mess up his reputation. Now, in John chapter four, Jesus is speaking with a Samaritan, a woman, a foreigner, a heretical worshiper. The fact that she comes at noon Indicates that she is such a social outcast, she has no reputation to preserve. There may not be someone more highly respected, humanly speaking, in the Bible than Nicodemus. And there may not be someone so lowly respected than this Samaritan woman. And hear me say this to you. Both have absolutely no hope for salvation and to escape the wrath of God apart from Jesus. Both are equally in need of the mercy and salvation of Jesus. And in fact, what the Bible talks about is if you're more like Nicodemus, it's even harder. You think you're good. You think you got it. But this chapter four, this woman shows us Jesus loves and comes for even a Samaritan woman whose history is so broken. She's so wounded. She's currently living in sexual sin. Jesus also comes for people like her. Jesus is nearer than you think. Now, the second truth we see about Jesus, it takes a turn in verse 10 through 15. And, the, and to sum up this section, it's this Jesus is more satisfying than you think. He's more satisfying than you think. Let's look again at verse 10. Jesus answered her If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Jesus Jesus is saying, if you only knew, he's telling this woman, you have no idea who you're talking to. And and I also just wanna point out how wonderful is it that Jesus engages this woman. He breaks cultural barriers. He casts aside prejudice. And what he does is he begins to make her a disciple of Jesus on the spot. In her ignorance, in her sin, in her shame, he's like, hey, let's, let's, let's talk. Let's talk about eternal things. Let's talk about your soul. Let's talk about your past. And he begins by telling her, if you only knew, he uses the expression, the gift of God. Now, uh, what is Jesus talking about? The gift of God. She didn't know. Uh, But we, readers of John, just heard in the last chapter, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave. And what did he give? His only son. That is what Jesus is saying. If you only knew the gift of God and who it is that is speaking to you. If you only knew who I was, you would ask me for water. And I would give you, and then he uses this expression living water. Now, that expression living water is, has so many layers to it. On the, on the very surface, uh, it's actually a common expression for a spring. Now, imagine living in the desert 2,000 years ago with no plumbing, no running water. Like, people did that. What they did was they dug wells and they, they, they depended on groundwater. There were some mountains nearby that would collect snow, and the water would drain into the ground, and you could dig deep into the ground, and you would dig these wells, and there would be water there. In fact, this well, Jacob's well, it, think about this, was a thousand-year-old well that people are still drinking from. Uh, archaeologists have found it. Uh, right now, at this moment, it's 100 feet deep. And they say it's for sure uh, would have filled in over time. So it was a deeper, deeper than a hundred feet down. Jacob dug this well. Now wells were like still water. And so you would, you, what, would you, what you would do, you travel around and you would have this like goat skin or animal skin bag, like a, canteen essentially, and you would lower your canteen down in a, or like a bucket and you would fill it up and you'd refill your water. Now, occasionally and rarely you would, you would get to somewhere in the wilderness and there would be water coming out of the ground on its own, not a hundred feet down. This water was a spring. And that is what they would refer to as living water. This water didn't have to be sought out. You didn't have to go down to it. You didn't have to dig a hundred feet down and then lower and constantly do this. This water on its own accord is giving itself up to the world. That's living water. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you're drinking from a well, but, but if you if you knew who I was, and he says, I could give you a spring. I could give you something even better than this well. And so he's speaking on, a, on the surface, this a literal metaphor she would understand. But Jesus connects this, this spring, this living water with this mysterious gift of God, with this mysterious, the one who could provide it. And so what he's, what he's doing is he's connecting with her. I'm speaking on the surface, but I'm also like, I'm speaking of something deeper right here. That that was something very common in in uh, this ancient culture. They would speak metaphorically, and everyone would understand. Okay. Yeah, you're talking about being born again, but what, you're really talking about something underneath. And, and the rabbis were famous for speaking around these metaphors. You know how like you could, someone says a metaphor and you start like pulling the metaphor apart and you're talking under the metaphor and over and all the implications? That was this culture. And so Jesus is saying, I could give you living water. And so what, this is important to know, he, she would have some idea, okay, he's saying something here, like more than just, hey, come, let me show you the spring I found. He's saying, like, what's he getting at? What, what, is he, what is he saying? And it's important to know that because her response is not what you would typically think. We're going to read verse 11 through 12, but essentially, she doesn't buy it. Essentially, she is, she's skeptical of Jesus. And she even comes close to mocking him and making fun of his wild claims, oh, you're gonna give me living water. So let's, let's look at a response in verse 11 and 12. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She begins by Honestly, making fun of him, she points out, "You don't even have a bucket, and you're telling me you're going to give me a living water." Like, what? Are you, it, it, it's as if you were driving, and uh, there's someone on the side of the road with a sign, and they're asking, you know, for help. And you roll down the window, and you're pulling out a few bucks, and then they come up to you and say, "Hey, you want a million dollars?" You'd be like. Okay, buddy. Uh, here's your here's your money. See you later. You'd be like, oh, okay, uh, interesting. And and so this woman is saying, I'm not buying it. You're yeah, you're the beggar here without even a rope and a bucket, and you're telling me you're going to give me living water. Okay. And then she says, oh, and and not only do you not even have a rope and a bucket, you think you're greater than the guy a thousand years ago who dug this hundred foot well. You, oh, okay, you're, you're better than him. Interesting, okay. Uh, it, would, it would be like her saying, it would be like someone going to the Grand Canyon and you're watching the sunset and you're looking at this amazing view and someone comes up and is like, oh, that's a pretty good view. You should see my backyard. You'd be like, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. You, um, okay, yeah, you're greater than Jacob. Okay. Uh, now, for all she knows, this is a completely random Jewish beggar making these wild claims. I'm gonna give you living water. If you knew the gift of God, I would give you living water. Like, okay, okay, buddy. And um, so she's, she's, she's being reasonable. She's like, who does this guy think he is? Who does he think he is? Now, it's important to know this is, as we, as we know this, the irony here is amazing because not only, not only is he greater than Jacob, He's the God of Jacob. And not only does he not lack the ability to get down to water, he is the fountain from which all goodness flows. Like she has no idea. And what I love is Jesus is patient, like, okay, okay. Um, She has no idea who she's talking to. Now, Now look what he says in verses 13 and 14 to this kind of cynicism. Jesus. And let me just stop right here and say this. We do the same thing. We do the same thing to Jesus. Okay, Jesus, living water, okay. If you would only come to me, I would satisfy yourself. Oh, okay, okay. You're telling me you're better than a spouse? Okay, Jesus. Oh, you're you're telling me you're even better than uh, a life uh, where I get everything I want? Okay, Jesus. And maybe we wouldn't say it that way, But hear me, every time we go somewhere else to drink, we're doing exactly what she is doing. Okay, Jesus, sure, yeah, living water, okay. uh, I'm gonna go get a drink. We're just like her. Now look at his patient response, verses 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water, I will give him will never be thirsty again. And that word again, never be thirsty again, is you'll, you'll never be thirsty forever. You will forever never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is saying, yeah, you got to pretty good situation here. This is a great well. It's a thousand-year-old well. It's a good well. Um, But you have to come here every single day. You got to get a bucket. You got to walk all the way down here. You got to come at noon because you're embarrassed of your life and your history. You got to fill it up. Probably take a break because it's hot in the middle of the desert. And you got to lug that water back. It's a good well. But you got to do that every single day. But if you come to me if you drink of the water I can give you, you will never be thirsty again. Now again, he's, he's speaking underneath, he's speaking to our soul, he's speaking to eternal things. He's saying, this is a well, this is a good well that you can come and drink from, but I'll give you a spring that will bubble up on its own power It's own power. You don't gotta spiritually dig 100 feet every day and walk and drink. That water just on its own is pushing, is bubbling, is welling up in you. And it's so good that it becomes eternal life. Jesus is speaking of salvation in another metaphor. Remember to Nicodemus, he said, you need to be born again. To to this woman, he's saying, I can give you living water, true, soul-satisfying, eternally satisfying water. If you come to Jesus, you will receive this living water. Now, I wanna just briefly help you see this uh, living water metaphor was a common expression it was also one that God had used in the Old Testament it, it gives a little bit of color to us we, we read this verse look at Ezekiel thirty six twenty five. we read this a few uh, verses ago He God promises to those who will come to him I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And one of the things we see that, the way, one of the ways God metaphorically uses water in the Old Testament is it speaks of cleansing. This, this living water cleanses us of our sin. You see it again and again in Leviticus, in Numbers. It's why the Jews were so obsessed with washing their hands and being ceremonially clean because they wanted their sins to be washed away. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not gonna sprinkle some water on you. I'm gonna give you living water, this river that's going to well up. It's going to wash all of your sin away. And then also look at Isaiah 58. This is another way God uses this metaphor. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. I briefly want to point out there's, there's two elements to this water. Number one, Jesus says, if you have this water, you will never be thirsty again. Those waters will not fail. Listen, if you come to Jesus, you will never face true spiritual, that's the right word, you will never be left without water. You will never be forsaken by this water. You will never be so desperate in the desert and there's nowhere to go. And that is a promise that goes on to eternity. It won't run dry. You will never be forsaken in the the spiritual wilderness without water. Now, uh, some of us Christians may be like, yeah, I mean, I feel pretty dry sometimes. Um, I've tasted that water. There've been some times where I feel, man, this thing is springing up, but honestly, sometimes I'm still thirsty. And I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. That was, that, that was me this week preparing for this sermon. I'm like, I know this in my head. It's not like getting to my soul. I don't really care. My soul is just like, blah, blah, just dry. Like, Yeah. And I was honestly mad at myself, like, why are you so dry, soul? Like, you have to, like, you have to preach on this. And, like, it's not working. Uh, this is what the psalmist said in Psalm 42, 1 through 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And so, so it's not, Jesus isn't saying that's never going to happen. He's he's saying, he's not saying you will never experience dryness. That's not what he's saying. What he's, this is what he's getting at. Um, And a word picture is helpful. Picture a tree that was planted by a lake and it, it has water and it was growing. And then all of a sudden that lake got dammed up and it dried up and there's no more water. That tree genuinely faces like a problem. There is no water here and it begins to dry up. And maybe occasionally it'll rain and it just soaks up everything it can, but, but like eventually it will die. It, will be, it is abandoned, forsaken in the desert. That's the kind of water the world provides. Now let me speak of the living water Jesus provides. This is a tree, the, the Bible talks about this, someone planted by a river. And that tree has this constant source of water. Now let me, let me say this, does that tree drink? Oh Yeah. It's drinking. Is it really hot outside and really thirsty? Oh yeah, but it has water to go to. Could there be like storms, like hail and wind? Could there be like kids like jumping and breaking its branches? Could it get sick? Could it externally just suffer? Oh yeah, but it's by the source of water that will never forsake it. It will never stop running and providing water always there available that's what jesus is getting at you once you come to jesus he's saying i will not forsake you never will my living water dry up never will it fail you never will you be abandoned by god yeah you will suffer there will be trials you may be weak and face difficulty yeah you're probably going to get pruned a lot it's going to hurt but there will always be spiritual water flowing to you that will never run dry. If you come to Jesus, that river will never dry up. And so the first point Jesus is making is like this water is never going to run out. It's going to go on forever. But the second thing he's getting at is it's living water. It's so, it's quality is so good. It leads to life, eternal life. It's not just not going to run out in quantity. It's, it's, unmatched in its quality, the satisfaction that Jesus gives to you, you will, never, you will never find water like it. You will never find a river like it. You will never find satisfaction for your heart like you will in Jesus, for your soul like you will in Jesus, for your mind, for your intellectual questions and doubts and confusion like you will in Jesus. Jesus. You will never find physical satisfaction for all of eternity like you will if you come to Jesus. One day you're gonna get a new body that will never break down and a new earth that will never break down. This water is, is eternal in its quality. This is when Jesus says in John ten ten. I think we have that, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness, fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus is saying, my water is never gonna run up and it will always satisfy you. And so it's only natural, this woman, when she hears this, she's understanding on some level is like in verse 15, look what she says. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water. You know, um, I almost ended the sermon with that point and uh, that it would be a good sermon. It would be truth enough for our soul. But I didn't want to sell short how Jesus says the, the, the root to that water. And, and so this woman, picture this. Picture, I want you to picture for a moment, you are sharing the gospel with an unbeliever you've been praying for for a long time. You're talking about Jesus. You're talking about how good he is and how satisfying he is. And you'll, you, you won't suffer in eternity and, and you're gonna have joy and satisfaction. You're just talking about how good he is. And then they look at you and they say, I want Jesus. How do I get him? I, I'm, all, I'm in. I'm in. What would you say? What would you do? What has the American church done for 50 years? Listen, pray a prayer, let's do it. And I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but I am saying, let's look at Jesus and what he does in that situation. This is is like kind of a a sharp edge to this sermon, Um, but we gotta look at Jesus. Look what he says in verses 16, 17, and 18. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the third thing we see about Jesus here, not only... Is Jesus more satisfying? Not only is Jesus nearer, but Jesus is holier than you think. He's God. He's perfect. He is absolutely holy. Listen, Jesus is not just this heavenly drinking fountain that you can come and push a button and take it and then leave Him and not do anything about your life. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. For someone to truly come to Jesus and receive living water, you must confess and repent of your sin. There's no other way. Because salvation is not just receiving the gifts of God apart from God. Salvation is not receiving the benefits of God apart from a real relationship with the Holy One Himself. Of course, people want forgiveness. Of course, people don't want to go to hell. Of course, people want joy and peace and satisfaction in a general sense. But true living water comes from a holy God, a perfect one. And if you want that water, you got to deal with God Himself and all of His holiness and all of His majesty and glory, and that means he must deal with your sin. He must deal with the thing that is keeping you from him. You see, God wants, he wants all of you. He doesn't just want to give you good stuff and uh, leave you on your own. He's too good for that. He's not a genie. He wants you. He wants your heart and your soul and your body. He loves you too much to offer you a general peace. Hear me, and let you go drink from whatever fountain you want. He won't have that. He wants all of you. And a genuine relationship with Jesus is one in which he is confronting our sin. And and I want to just point out, Jesus isn't afraid to offend her. He's not afraid to break cultural norms. He's not afraid to like, this, hear me, he's not afraid to bring up her sin before he offers her eternal life. You guys, so often we hear today in in popular teaching, don't talk about people's sin, just give them Jesus. Don't talk about, pick the the sin. Just give him Jesus, he'll get around to it one day. You guys, Jesus does the exact opposite. If you wanna come to me, We got to talk about this sin. You want to come to me? You need to deny yourself. You must pick up a cross and then you can follow me. Listen, Jesus isn't into selling his kingdom. Hey, just come, dude, just take, drink. Listen, he's like, you got to confess your sin. You have to obey. I'm your Lord. You got to obey me. You got to like walk with me. I'm far holier than you think. I don't just say, ah, whatever, we'll get around to that sin a couple years. Just come to church, feel good, drink some living water and go. He's like, no way. I love you too much. Let's talk about your sin. I've left heaven. I'm here to provide eternal life. But to truly come and drink, we gotta talk about your sin. And this morning, if, if you um, have not dealt with some sin, you and Jesus, I'm just going to tell you, there's living water on the other side of that conversation. There's living water on the other side of you and Jesus talking about that sin. He knows, he sees. I even just want to point out, he's really gracious. He's like, hey, go call your husband. He doesn't just call her out right he's like hey go call your husband he's gentle that's like right now i'm not like listing the sins in your life he's gentle say he's like, call your husband and she's like oh yeah you know i don't have one and um, that's kind of a confession and he's like yeah you're right you don't you've had five and you're currently living with someone who's not and in fact if i'm going to mention one sin let me just mention the one jesus does it's sin to live with someone who's not your spouse That's just sin, and I do know it's going on in this church, and just hear the love of Jesus say, yeah, that's not okay. I love you too much to let you live in your sin. I wanna give you living water if you only knew, but you got to repent. You got to deal with that sin, and if you are willing to do that, I want you to hear this. Jesus faced true thirst for your sin on the cross. There was a time when Jesus said, hanging naked on the cross, I thirst, I thirst. What he was doing was drinking the bitter cup, the wrath of God, the holiness of God poured out on evil and sin. He became sin on that cross your sin and mine, if we will only confess it and deal with it and trust him to forgive us of it. So I want to close just very, very quickly with with three practical things. Number one, have you and Jesus dealt with your sin? Have you dealt with your sin? This is why we do communion every single week. This isn't just like a when you get saved conversation. This is like yeah, Jesus, this week, I confess my sin. I was this, I was that, I repent. And then we remember that he took that sin on the cross. And then we take that bread and that juice, and we say, I believe that you've done this for me, Jesus. Thank you. The Bible even says, if you, if you want to make some progress in that, you, you should even confess it to people, that healing will come. So have you dealt with your sin? Uh, the second question I want to ask you is, where are you drinking? Where are you drinking? From what source? What wells are you drinking? Let me just read you this verse in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. This is uh, do we have it? Maybe not? Okay, cool, I'll, I'll read it real quick. Jeremiah 2:13. This is God speaking to his people when they are at their worst. They are in rebellion to Him. Jeremiah 2:13 maybe the saddest verse in the Bible. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Where are you drinking? Have you forsaken the fountain of living water. Are you running and trying to be satisfied with this little broken leaky cistern? That's like literally the definition of insanity. Church, let's not drink from these cisterns. Let's drink from the fountain of living waters. And then number three, um, if, if by God's grace you've dealing with your sin and you've been trying to commune with God, I want to ask you, who are you pursuing? If you found this water, are you pursuing others saying, I have found living water? I have the answer for your thirst. Jesus says, as the father has sent me, so I send you. If you found it, you have been sent by Jesus go and tell them there is water, there is life, there is cleansing and forgiveness. There is satisfaction that is greater and deeper than any the world can offer and it never runs dry. And in fact, like that tree by the river, you will only grow in your capacity to drink for all of eternity. He is better than you think and will continue to be forever. So are are we pursuing, are we going? Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who gives us living water. Oh, Lord, if we only knew, if I only knew, if this gathering of your people and those who are not yet your people only knew how good you are, that you're nearer to us, that you're far more satisfying, That you're so good, you want to deal with our sin. God, if we only knew. So, Holy Spirit, I just ask by your power that you would would make your word alive. You'd make your word alive. I ask for great confession and repentance this morning. I ask for great faith as we take communion to know He forgives me. He drank that bitter cup for me, He took my sin. And now I can drink from his goodness for all of eternity. So would you lead us together corporately in that work of confession? And Lord, would then we, gosh, just water our souls, Lord. Restore our souls. Give us hope and faith where we need it, where our hearts need it, our souls, our minds, our bodies. Give us real faith, Jesus. Water us. Make us like a watered garden this morning, Lord. I thank you for how your word just softens up and makes that soil ready. Would your word go down deep this morning?